Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We've got a great show lined up for you today with a little bit of a slant towards athletics. Uh, And we're going to just start it right off the bat with our first guest, who is the husband of one of our college coach educators uh, and one of uh, our in a, in a long series of people who are coming in to talk a little bit about how they got their start in their particular career space. We want to welcome Ryan Aselta to the show. Hey, Ryan, how you doing today? Hey, Ian. Thanks for having me on today. Excited. Really glad to have you. And I'm not going to tell anyone out there who your wife is, but they can match the last names if they are <laughs> big fans of the show. Um, you have had a really interesting career. Um, before we start talking a little bit about what you have actually done professionally, I want to go back to your college years. When you started college, what was your sense for what you were planning to study and how that plan was going to fit your intended career? If you can put yourself back in the shoes of the uh, 18-year-old Ryan going to college. Yeah, uh, a little green and naive back then, I would say, when I got to Stonehill College. But um, I kind of had a sense from growing up such a big sports fan that I wanted to be a sportscaster. Um, I didn't know what that meant and what it was going to take to get there, but I knew that that was something that I I might want to pursue. So that helped me shape choosing my major in college, at least, and, and becoming a communication major and eventually a journalism minor. But that was really it for the foundation. I did not go to a big uh, broadcasting school. Um, I did not go to a a Syracuse or Missouri where they have uh, a robust broadcasting program. I went to a small liberal arts college um, and my broadcasting um, journey began at Stonehill by just getting involved. And I think there's different paths. There's students that they know they want to do play-by-play or want to be a talk show host or a producer, and they're going to go to certain types of schools to get that college training. Um, I went to college to kind of get the overall experience and then kind of shape that experience to what I was looking to pursue. And I understood that there were opportunities for me at a small school like Stonehill. So I just got involved. I I got involved with the, the school run radio station, um, I, I met some guys through different teams. I was playing baseball at the time. And one of them was involved with a talk show that talks sports. And I figured I could go do that. And, uh, I got involved and had a talk show my freshman year, which I had for four years. And, um, I got involved with play by play and doing, uh, I believe I started doing women's basketball at school, um, transition to football and men's basketball, um, and really just getting a hands-on experience of, Hey, you got to push these buttons and you got to talk into this microphone and learning and making a ton of mistakes as I went along. Um, I, I put that in tandem with what I was learning in, in, in my classes, uh, some of the, the multimedia classes, the communication classes, the journalism classes. Um, yeah. But really, it was all about just getting my hands dirty, learning from my mistakes and, and trying it out and see if I liked it, which I did. And that then furthered more interest from my end of, of wanting to really pursue a possible postgraduate career in, in broadcasting. You're, you're drawing a contrast initially between a liberal arts college, which has a big pot of people essentially that come together and explore lots of different things, have the same kind of foundational courses. That's the similar kind of, that's an idea of liberal arts colleges in general. And that's contrasted with places that might have a particular focus on sports broadcasting or sports journalism. Um, I love the experience that you're describing. I'm wondering to what extent did you have friends or peers, classmates who were interested professionally in the same things that you were? Were you the only one at Stonehill that said, I'm going to be a sports sports journalist or a sports broadcaster? Or was there a, a small community of people who were interested in that kind of uh, opportunity? Yeah, I think there was a small community that were more passionate about it. And those were the uh, friends that I made uh, either at the radio station or, or covering games where we were involved and we, we were, you know, we were doing everything from producing our own shows, writing our copy, 
broadcasting and hosting and then promoting our shows, putting up flyers on campus. Hey, listen to our show this week. We've got these guests, you know, calling coaches or players to come on our show. There was a few of us that were heavily involved with that. So we kind of had a small fraternity in that. I would hit up my friends. My friends were sports fans. If I needed a co-host for the night, I'd have my buddy who I I went to high school and he went to college with me and we played basketball for eight years together. He came on to talk sports with me. So there was, there was interest from a um, a casual level uh, was much more robust from a serious level of wanting to possibly pursue a career. It was a very small group of us, but that group helped. We helped each other. We, we made relationships with people in the industry that led to internships. Um, I think being at a small school helped me develop those relationships and, and get an internship at a major radio station in Boston while I was in school. Um, that was made through a, a connection of a friend of a friend that introduced me to someone um, from Stonehill. So um, it's interesting. Stonehill is a funny place. It's a small liberal arts college. We've had, uh, including myself, there's three of us that made a, a pretty lengthy career in sports broadcasting from a hmm. non-broadcasting school. Um, one of those uh, is, a, is now a news anchor in Boston. The other one is, is a sports anchor in Boston. Um, and then myself, who was a, a, a sports anchor in, in New York and Boston throughout my career, coming from a school certainly not known for their their broadcasting history, but um, everyone the same kind of story though making yeah, but it, making it's, the it's, most of what they had in front of them yeah and 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 you had a lot in front of you it was really cool to hear you talk about you know I, women's basketball and then football and then like there are sports there and there's a need for somebody to fill that role and you can imagine you know the competition at Michigan to be doing the play by play for the student radio is going to be pretty fierce because there are a lot of people who are in that space but at Stonehill you can really have this opportunity to explore and flex your muscles and try lots of different things when you left school and I want to talk a little bit about this internship, but I'm curious, like, as you started to have conversations with other people in the industry, people who became your professional colleagues, did you notice differences between those who went to a school that was situated, set up for broadcasting versus people like you who kind of made your own broadcasting experience as a part of your college? Yeah, I would say certainly I didn't have that job set up coming out of college. Um, When I left college, I actually picked up a post-grad internship on my own. It it was non-paid, but Mm -hmm. I had gained a lot of radio experience in college through an internship, but also at the radio station at school. But I wanted to be in television and I didn't have television experience because we didn't have a TV station at Stonehill at the time. Um, And I picked up an internship at a, a regional cable news network really just the point of getting some experience and learning the TV side of things on my own. So um, I did that. I, I, my internship at the radio station turned into a, a part-time job. It wasn't uh, certainly wasn't luxurious or glamorous. It was weekend overnights producing at uh, WEEI sports radio in Boston, the biggest sports radio uh, station in new England. But as you can imagine, weekend overnights, what those hours are there, for a 22, 23 year old, they're not uh, a lot of fun, but um, it got me in, in the door and, um, and that got me in the industry. In the meantime, I picked up a job to pay my rent with, I was living with, you know, buddies in Boston and uh, I was waiting tables at legal seafoods in Boston. Um, I made a ton of money doing that and I worked my tail off and then weekend nights I would, I would, was pushing buttons and editing tape at the radio station. And then on Sundays I would go to this TV station and learn about television. So I had to work for it um, to get that first real opportunity of, of what I wanted to do. I, I think if, if I had gone to a, a big broadcasting school, um, there may have been an opportunity right out of college, um, but my college experience would have been a lot different. And I don't think I would have traded that. Um, I know it's so competitive, like you mentioned at those schools, uh, Michigan or Syracuse, and you know, it might take you to your senior year to get behind a microphone. Right. And to be calling a sport, and that sport may be volleyball. No offense to volleyball, but it's not one of the major sports. Whereas sure. when I was a freshman, I was calling baseball, basketball, and football games. And, and that was experience that I couldn't have gotten somewhere else as a, as a freshman in college. So um, yeah. different, different experience, different route. But, um, and that kind of was my journey throughout my career. It was a little bit different route than someone who may have gone to a major school. I was listening to the Smart List podcast just last week, and Will Ferrell was the guest. And Will Ferrell 
obviously famous comedian, but he was a sports journalism major at USC. And he tells this great story of being in a class and, and the professor asks, Hey, we need somebody to go over and interview the coach of the LA Rams. And is anybody interested in doing that? And everybody's hand in the room shoots up immediately, except for Will Farrell's who says, well, I guess this is an indication I shouldn't be here, but it was cool to hear him sort of give that perspective on just how competitive the sports journalism program was at a place like USC, where you have major sports in Los Angeles and thinking about how different that sounds from what you're describing here in terms of your experience. Now you, at some point you figured out, all right, I'm not, I don't have to work at legal seafood and hustle on the weekends in order to make this a career. What was the point at which you kind of said, all right, I found my niche here. I found what exactly I'm going to be doing in this space and now feel like I am a professional sports journalist. Yeah. Well, I knew I wanted to be an on-air uh, personality or host or anchor. And mm-hmm. I knew that wasn't going to happen in Boston for my first job. It's just simply it's sure. a top 10 market. Um, I wasn't going to do that. So I had to start looking for jobs in different markets. And my first job um, opportunity came from Fort Myers, Florida, which I was very, very lucky. There's over 200 markets in the country media wise. Many of them are not very luxurious. And they're not in parts of the country that have great weather and uh, a great yeah. social scene for someone in their early 20s. So I lucked out. I got a mid-market job um, in Fort Myers, Florida at a nice location at a Fox affiliate. My job title was news photographer. So I was technically a cameraman. I was told you're going to be a cameraman and shoot news. And when there's time available or in your free time, you can do some sports reporting. So I said, well, that. I heard that that translated into what I wanted it to mean. And uh, I moved to Fort Myers, Florida and took that job. And I was originally out in the streets with a camera on my shoulder, shooting hurricane coverage in floods and storms and going to a murder scene and shooting video, learning on the fly how to use the camera, actually. Um, And in my spare time, I was going covering high school sports stories, um, shooting my own stand-ups as a one-man band. Um, and eventually just like everything else in my career leading up to that point, it led to something else. Um, sports reporter and photographer led to an opportunity to fill in anchor on the news desk for sports. Um, that led to the weekend anchor is leaving that opportunity is there. You're going to be the weekend sports anchor full-time only doing sports. Um, and then our sports director switched to news eventually. This is all within three years. And Within two and a half years, I was the sports director, the, the Monday through Friday main sports anchor uh, on the newscast, um, where I, I got to cover the Super Bowl down there, a couple of Super Bowls actually in Florida and World Series and, and major events. So um, that happened very quickly. But if I didn't take that leap and say, hey, continue to get your hands dirty, learn, try new things, be multi-talented um, and, and, and get that experience um, those jobs would have never fallen into place because I, I, I had to take that leap and, and trust that that was going to happen. So that's how, that's how the journey started. It sounds, it sounds like a lot of saying yes to things, yes to opportunities, trying new stuff, um, not waiting for the perfect opportunity, but looking for something that can give you a foot in the door. And I've heard this from friends of mine who've worked in other entertainment roles. There are a lot of different fields where you have your eye on the top or a particular role, but there's a lot of steps along the way that you need in order to get there. Um, what that was it that advice, honestly, Ian, that would be my advice for um, students coming out of college. Now mm-hmm. um, you do see a lot of, of, of students. I've worked with a lot of them in the last bunch of years that um, came out of big, it came out of USC. I worked with plenty of producers over the years that came out of USC and, and got that initial job, but that wasn't the job for them. Yeah. Um, and they weren't willing to put in the time to get to the job by working whatever job they had at the time. And I saw them kind of fizzle out a little bit. Um, I think you have to be willing to, to get your foot in the door. And it, sometimes it's old fashioned work. You, you got to work hard. Um, the next job I took in from Florida, I went back to Boston to the Fox affiliate. My job title was sports producer. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to ultimately be a sports producer. I had been on air for a couple of years now, but they also offered me the opportunity to be the producer and be our third guy, do some sports reporting. Well, now I hear that as I'm going to be on camera in market number seven in the country. Right. Um, right. I hopped on that. I worked hard as a producer, but also got opportunities on air 
which again, same exact thing happened. I turned into the weekend sports anchor. Eventually the main guy left and I became the main sports anchor at a major affiliate in, in Boston. So, um, that wasn't the job I initially took, but I got the job that I was looking for. Uh, it just took a little time and a little hard work to get there. We've got a little bit of time left. I want to ask you, because you mentioned as we were getting ready to start the segment today that the sports broadcasting, sports journalism industry has changed really dramatically. I mean, there are things like, you know, podcasts are obviously quite huge. You have streaming services. The people that are watching their local affiliates are probably dwindling a little bit as people are, you know, getting YouTube TV and, and you know, watching more national kind of coverage uh, of sports. And I'm curious about how your education, given it wasn't focused on a very specific aspect of journalism, but was much more broad, has prepared you to be able to be nimble in the face of these changes and find a way to continue to do stuff that you, you love in the sports journalism space. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it taught me to be agile and, and the days of that, you know, it's an old saying, the one trick pony in, in the media industry, they don't exist anymore. If right. you want to make it in, in media, especially sports media, you have to be able to do many different things. And yeah. one that made me um, valuable to companies that I could write, I could produce, I could be on camera, um, I could do voiceover. Um, but it also made me relatable to a lot of my coworkers. You work with a lot of different types of people. Um, I would work with producers, directors, technical people, graphics artists, people who I understood. I always made it uh, when I worked at TV stations. Um, I, I tried to learn what they did. The people that made me look good on camera, I tried to learn what goes into their job. Um, and them knowing, hey, you used to be a camera guy or you used to be a pr producer. I got me a little street cred within the building um, and it, we worked very well together. And those people always were willing to help me become better at my job because I had been in their shoes and I understood what they did. So I think Stonehill being a liberal arts college, I, I took many different classes, many different, you know, explored many different avenues. Um, it made me willing to do that in my career, to, to take the paths. It's not always a straight line to where you want to be. Sometimes you have to take a few curves and maybe a U-turn here or there, but eventually yeah. if you're willing to put in the work, you're going to get to where you want to be. And there's this, there's this um, ever-present sense of curiosity and learning and, and being open to that process. I think that's really cool. You never sort of said, I know everything that I need to know in this space. It's always, what more can I gather? What more can I understand? That's, that's awesome. And I think it's a good reminder for, you know, a student might be listening to this and say, well, I'm not interested in sports journalism. I don't know if this is right for me, but there are some wonderful lessons here just about how you find your space in a career um, and how you work towards those things. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say this one last thing yeah. on that is that you have to be willing to evolve. When I got into the industry, yeah, that's I a great point. To be that guy who did the highlights on the evening news, 15 years later, People were watching the evening news less than when I grew up and when I was yeah. in college even. So um, at just you know, within the last seven, eight years, I had pivoted from television to the digital space because I kind of looked ahead and said, this is where people are going to consume their news, their information, their sports. And I made a jump. I left, a, I left the number one market in the country in New York at a, a Fox affiliate. And I went to Sports Illustrated um, on their digital side to be a host there because I thought that's the direction the industry was going. Um, and it has gone that way. I think we all consume information and news quite differently these days. So that extended my broadcast career by another decade because I was willing to evolve with the times and not be stuck in only what I knew. So um, I'm sure you know, college students now, this industry is going to look a lot different 20 years from now. Yeah, no and kidding. Be ready no for kidding. it, anticipate it but be willing to embrace it as, as you kind of evolve with, as a professional. What are you working on, writing about, enjoying the most right now in the uh, sports space? So in the last year or two, I've gotten into the world of golf, um, just kind of head in. It's always, it's always been a passion of mine. Um, our kids are heavily involved in the golf world. Yeah. Um, so I currently, I write for golf magazine. I host some of their video coverage. Um, and I also in the last year I've started doing play by play uh, for ESPN plus, which um, is the streaming uh, platform for the PGA tour. So um, as crazy as it is, I fly every six weeks or so to Florida to broadcast mm -hmm. studios and I broadcast golf tournaments 
um, that are taking part all over the country. And we bring that to millions and millions of people around the country and around the world on ESPN, which is, which is pretty cool. So when I got into the industry, I never imagined that this is what I would be doing yeah. now, uh, going on, you know, 25 years later after college, but, um, it, it's, a, it's a good place to be right now. Definitely. Ryan, thanks so much for, uh, accepting the invitation and coming to us to uh, talk about your career. Really appreciate it. You got it, Ian. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Great. Folks, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what high school athletes should be doing right now if they're interested in being recruited for college. So stick around. Don't go away. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We just had a really wonderful conversation with Ryan Celta, who has been in sports journalism for quite a long time. Uh, went to uh, Stonehill College and studied communications. But now instead of talking about those who comment on athletics, we want to talk a little bit about those who might play college athletics. And what joining us today uh, for that conversation is Kenan Dick, one of our educators here at College Coach. Hey, Kenan, how are you doing? I'm doing well today. Thank you. Glad to have you. You are one of our resident experts on athletic recruitment, something that I think all of us dabble in a little bit here and there. I have a student I'm working with this year who is a potential baseball recruit. Uh, But I think it's one of those areas where families have a lot of potential hope and enthusiasm. Their (laughs) kid is pretty good at sports. I want to know can I get an athletic scholarship for my student at some point? Uh, it's a more complicated question, I think, than it sounds. Absolutely. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about students in two different age groups. I want to talk about students who are heading from sophomore to junior year this summer. And mm-hmm. then those students who are heading from junior to senior year this summer. So mm-hmm. let's start with the younger group. Um, okay. Those who are between 10th and 11th grade what are the things that are most actively under consideration for them right now if they have interest in being a recruited athlete for college? That's a really good question. I think, um, first of all, compared to when you and I went through college and up until probably uh, five or 10 years ago, the, the timeline for the NCAA recruitment has changed significantly. So it's really moved up into that summer um, when coaches become more active with contacting students, getting official visits set up, and some of the more kind of heavy-duty elements of the recruitment process. So for many students who are going into their junior year, especially if they're in that D1, D2 category, oftentimes uh, throughout the summer, they've been going to uh, camps, ID camps, uh, tournaments, showcases, etc., where they've been able to demonstrate that athleticism. And that's often where many of these coaches are going to take notice, uh, see if they are going to be a good fit for their program and start those conversations. So for many students who are going into their junior year, the communication process has begun. And for some students um, with a high level of talent, it started even years ago. Um, So for juniors, I would say, One of the keys that they are doing is kind of developing that scope of athletic program that they wish to be recruited by, contacting those coaches directly, getting onto their radar. Um, There's a step that they will most likely need to take in that communication process, which is filling out the student-athlete questionnaire. Mm -hmm. So most students are going to go to that sport page that uh, for the school in question, 
there's usually a link to that questionnaire right on that sport page, men's soccer or whatever it might be. And then they fill that out for that particular coach. Many athletic directors want to see that step taken before they go kind of officially into that recruiting process. So that is often, if you reach out by email or connect with a, with a coach, oftentimes that's going to be one of the first steps that they ask you to do is fill out that questionnaire. Gotcha. They're kind of a pain in the neck. Uh, they probably take about 15 to 20 minutes with, you know, all the nitty gritty details of, um, of your past performance and stats, et cetera, all included. So they, take, they do take a little while to, to fill out, but that's one of the, the key steps. And then many of those students are also using those opportunities throughout the summer to uh, develop highlight reels, to develop a video, especially for field sports or talent-based sports as opposed to timed sports. Yeah. So that um, so they have something to to run with and be able to showcase that uh, talent through uh, to coaches over the course of this next year. How do, at what point do students in general have a sense that this might be a real possibility for them? It feels like with time based sports, we've got one obvious answer, right? Which is if right. your times are approaching where you're seeing those college competition times, you're in really good shape, especially if you see kind of a trend where your times are decreasing, your performance is increasing relative to others. But some of these performance-based contexts, leagues are different, uh, positions are different, uh, intangibles are present. How does a student think about, am I good enough uh, to be able to be in this pool of potential recruited athletes? That's an excellent question. Um, oftentimes, the answer to that question is going to be some of the better coaches that students work with. Sometimes that's a varsity coach. Oftentimes that's a more competitive travel team coach that has had some experience with this. The hard part is that even, even in that realm, it's hard to find students who are getting really direct um, feedback from those coaches. So they tend to be a little bit, um, more optimistic about students' chances of recruitment um, than is often the case. So mm -hmm. take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. There are certainly students that um, garner that attention very early on, right? So it's clear that these are superstar athletes that, um, that get attention in eighth, ninth, 10th grade. And so for them, it's usually pretty clear that, um, that this is going to be happening. For most other students, it's something that they're going to grow into over those first couple of years, and, um, and attention will start to, to build as they, uh, they go into their high school experience. I had a, a friend played high school baseball with, and he was a great, great hitter, great player, all the tools, definitely the best player I ever played with, best player on my teams throughout the years, pretty good player. Mm -hmm. And then we played against this other team with this kid, and he was going to be pitching. And uh -huh. about 20 scouts showed up with radar guns. And what I, what I realized <laughs> in that moment is there's really good. And then there is really, really good. And right. at those levels, I think you start to see, especially when you're talking about differentiation between high school and, and college athletes um, and, and what that recruitment process kind of looks like. Um, exactly. You did mention contacting coaches, and I think we often hear these stories of, you know, illegal recruiting practices, and they're like the stuff of movies, and did you do this or that? And so sometimes people are concerned, can I contact a coach? Can I reach out? What, what do I do? How does that coach mm -hmm. contact me? Uh, it sounds like you're saying that sending an email, reaching out to a coach is perfectly fine and something that is actually helpful for students who might be wanted to be recruited as athletes. Is that right? Any concerns That's correct. there? Um, reaching out to, to uh, coaches, I would not be concerned. Um, the, the question is, what can they do in response? And ah. that's where the NCAA has regulations, right? Okay. So what I would suggest is, um, and the, the problem is that each sport can be a little bit different um, and what that timing is. So the NCAA puts out a the guide for college-bound student athletes. Um, and every year in the spring, they put out a, a new version of that. And it has all of the different timelines for each of the sports that have different regulations outlined in it. So for instance, um, when it comes to when can I schedule an official visit with a coach, each, each like, uh, what it is for even men's basketball is different for women's basketball. Hmm. 
women's basketball is kind of the, the funniest one where it's, you can schedule a, a visit the Thursday after the final game of the final four competition. So <laughs> okay. basically give your coach a couple of days <laughs> and then get it rolling. Um, so that's a very specific time, yeah. right? Most of the other sports are either August one, but um, going into your junior year or September one of your junior year. Okay. Okay. Mostly so, junior year. And mostly and junior is something year. Something that that you often repeat internally when we have meetings around our team around recruitment and just reminding us a little bit about the timelines for students. But it happens pretty early. It does. Um, and and things get accelerated a bit if you're going to be in that recruited athlete space. And I think that that raises the question. For these students that are from junior into senior year, they are going to be applying to college just like everybody else this fall. But to what extent do they still have work in front of them as potential recruited athletes? Are, is most of it finished by now? Or are there still some steps that they need to take? And is that dependent on their skill level too? It's going to be dependent on their skill level. Um Division one and two versus division three are going to be a little bit different in what they need to prepare. But I think you bring up a good point, um, or I think you alluded to a good point, which is in terms of the work ahead of them, that can be quite different in terms of the recruiting process, but also the application process. Okay. And so what I tell athletes is that you need to be prepared to execute on that application much earlier than most other students. Mm. So many students are looking at, you know, and, you know, UNC, October 15th, or, you know, early action, early decision, November 1 types of deadlines. Right. Many of the athletes are going to get requests from coaches as early as August to send in their completed application. Huh. So for, for those students where they're kind of at the head of the curve in terms of that, um, that uh, recruiting process, they need to be ready early to be able to take advantage of that. So I had a student who played lacrosse, uh, was getting recruited by Wesleyan. He needed to have everything in by September 1. And I had a, a recruit, a crewing recruit for Harvard. Everything had to be in by August 15th, I think it was. So that was just a mad scramble. So she had to try to reach out to her guidance counselor to get the transcripts in. They had to get a um, kind of jury rig the process to uh, to get the teacher recommendations completed. So it was, it was pretty difficult to, to get all that stuff in. But many of the coaches want to do that, even though it's an early decision or early action application, which technically isn't due for a couple of months, many times they need that application in early and you'll get your decision. You'll get that likely letter, right? But, um, but they need to be ready to go much earlier than most. Ready to go is a really interesting way of putting it because, you know, you have a lot of students in under traditional timelines, traditional applicants who are still visiting colleges, who are still putting their list together, who are still deciding what schools they like. You're, you seem to seem to be suggesting that for athletes, this is something that you've got to make this decision because coaches are looking for those apps. The admission office is in contact with those coaches and it's going to happen a lot sooner. Do you have any recommendations for athletes who feel like they can't make up their mind or they still want that more traditional examination of the process? Do they have to be ready to say yes sooner? It depends upon where they are on that recruiting chart. Um, yeah. They should, if they are a hot recruit for that coach, be prepared for some of that pressure to apply earlier. And there are certainly coaches that will say, hey, look, if you can't decide, I need to move on. Right. Because I yeah. need to know what my one through five is. And if you can't commit to that, then I need to find an athlete that's good for my program who can. And so sometimes they will get that type of pressure, which is unfair to the student who's undecided. Yeah. Um, but they probably will have other opportunities where there isn't that type of pressure as well. At least hopefully they will. But um, but if you look at that from the coach's perspective, if they need to have this wrapped up in a month, they don't have time to kind of let kids kind of just get to that point on their own. To what extent does having stronger academic credentials put a student in a position of greater opportunity in this space? Um, you know, is there a big difference between, say, being an all A student who's a recruit at a particular school versus being a student that has all B's and is still a recruit at that school, 
but obviously the academic profiles are really different. It's going to certainly open doors for students. And for some, for some programs where they have a tier system, uh, an academic tier system, if you're one of their stronger students, that's going to help that coach balance their list better. And so that might help you get into that particular program because you're going to be academically offsetting another weaker applicant or recruit. Um, and then, of course, just in terms of the selectivity of the schools that you'd be applying to, that's going to open up increased doors, right? So I was talking with a student who um, is an MIT recruit um, or on that coach's list, and part of what they're saying at MIT is you have to pretty much be able to get in on your own. Um, or you have to be pretty much at that level. And um, and then hopefully we can get you on, you know, if you're admitted, then we can get you onto the team. But they don't have the same type of influence that another um, coach might where they have a slotting system, right, where they can kind of designate who they want to bring in to a certain number. Gotcha. So yeah. a great reminder, practice your free throws, but also do your homework. Right. You've also got to make your sure that you're doing both things simultaneously because it will create more opportunities for you. Exactly. And awesome. if a coach is in a position where they don't have to use a slot for you, that just that makes you an even more valuable recruit. All right. So hit the books uh, and then hit the track. I don't know. There's a lot of different <laughs> idioms right. that we can throw out here. It's sports <laughs> after all. It's really easy. Uh Kenan, thanks a lot for, for coming on the show and walking us through this process. It always is complicated for me, and I, I love how simple you make it uh, for all of us. So thank Terrific. you. Terrific. You're welcome. All right, folks, when we come back, we are going to talk a little bit about financial award letters. What are they? Can you share them with people? How to make sense of them? So don't go away. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. We've had a really wonderful pair of segments to open, uh, focusing on sports journalism and broadcasting, talking a little bit about the recruited athlete. And now we're going to turn to the financial corner of things and talk a little bit about award letters. So joining us to do that is one of our newer colleagues on the finance side. We've got uh, Wally Boudet here joining us. Hey, Wally, how are you? I'm great. I'm great, Ian. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. And I haven't had a chance to meet you yet in person uh, because I missed our big team meeting that we had back in June. But um, I understand you're down in Louisiana and, and your background in college finance is also from some universities uh, in the New Orleans area. Is that correct? Sure. I started I started actually as a lowly Perkins loan clerk at the University of New Orleans back in the uh, eons ago, it seems, and I eventually moved over to Loyola University, New Orleans, uh, and was promoted all the way up to director. Uh, left there, and uh, and have worked with other associated jobs since then. Gotcha. So you've seen the full range of things in the college finance space, and I imagine at one point your signature was on the bottom of these award letters. Absolutely. Uh, right, letting students know exactly what they were going to be offered in terms of financial aid. So for those folks who maybe haven't been through the application process with an older student, 
might be entering it for the first time this year. Can we just talk a little bit about award letters, what they include, and how they arrive uh, either at a student's doorstep or in a student's email? Great, great, great question. Great, way, great place to start. So an award letter is, uh, some may consider it to be the golden ticket. It's the notification from the school indicating all of the different sources of aid that the student is receiving. Now, once the student was admitted, they may have received notification from the admissions office about a merit or scholarship offer. Mm -hmm. There may have been some other offers of aid coming in elsewhere. The award letter combines all of the different sources of funding that a student is going to receive as a notification. In many cases, it's also going to include the cost of the school, meaning cost of attendance, which is tuition fees, room, board, books, everything on there. And in an ideal situation, it will also calculate a gap between the amount of aid that was offered, regardless of the type of aid, and any financial gap that may be available. Some schools go ahead and package a parent loan to fill that gap. Mm -hmm. at, for, for an experienced person, uh, someone like myself, I, I, I feel that that's undesirable. Okay. Uh, more so, I would prefer that the school lists options that are available to families to fill the gap with that parent loan being one of them. So it really is an all-encompassing notification of what the student is receiving from the school. Now, in the best case scenario, the student has gone out or the family has gone out to the financial aid website of the college and they've created, uh, they've completed the net price calculator. And that net price calculator has given them a pretty close estimate of what maybe what they may be receiving. However, this is the final thing. Obviously, yeah. it's open to potential revisions based on a change of circumstances or anything else. But this is the final deal. This is it. Okay. Yeah. Um, in a case such as with loans, family may have the opportunity to decline a loan. Or they may have the opportunity to reduce a loan or anything like that. So there may be some actions that are necessary, responses that are necessary from the student. But this is the financial picture as it shows, meaning money being offered and potentially money that, that may be due to the school. So a lot of complex pieces, moving parts in this space. Surely all award letters have exactly the same format with exactly the same language on it, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's incredibly exasperating to see <laughs> the variance. And in fact, there was some, there was some federal motion a few years ago to provide more commonality or to force more commonality as far yeah. as what schools should include on it. But as far as how it's displayed, there is no commonality. It could depend on the school's software. It could depend on the, the graphics designer at the school. It could right. depend on a plethora of, of items. What they choose to bold, what's underlined, how big the font size is. You're going to get 10 different award letters from the 10 schools that you got into and have to make sense of all of them on their own. And chances are none of them will be identical. So yes, you'll have to decipher each one potentially. Yeah. Everyone is just a special flower in the wilderness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you, before we talk a little bit more about award letters, I want to back up to what you said about the net price calculator, because often families are going through that net price calculator earlier in the process to try and identify, right, what they think that the expected family contribution will be at, at given schools. Sure. Do you recommend that people take a screenshot or download that net price calculator, figure out what the final report is there, and then save that somewhere? Um, or should they just get the information and write it on a piece of paper and then move on? I, that's an extremely excellent point, Ian. And, and I would recommend that they go ahead and take a screenshot of it and save it. There may be some situations where a school's packaging philosophy or institutional methodology, which is the school formula for, for, for determining students' aid or need-based aid, may change midstream. And I think that that would be a valid point to go back to the school to say, look at the difference between this and this. Now, with that being said, there is a requirement that every school have this net price calculator out there on their website, but there's not a requirement 
that schools keep it current. They, we're, schools that only use federal methodology, they may just buy this package from some software provider. Yeah. And they've got it out there and they've got, we fulfilling the regulation, the requirements were good. On the other hand, a school that uses institutional methodology, meaning that they create their own formula. Yeah. It would be detrimental if they didn't provide an updated version of that as they change their formula or anything like that. So in a federal methodology scenario, whereas they're just using the information from the FAFSA, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's pretty cut and dry, I mean, because there's no variability with that. Yeah. Institutional methodology, yes, absolutely. You would want to uh, take a screenshot of that. And if there are significant discrepancies, maybe bring it to the school's attention. That's great. That's great. So you've got, let's say you've done your homework and you've got your net price calculator and you've taken your screenshot because you're excellent at record keeping, but this award letter comes in and it's hard to make sense of, and there's no key to explain it to you. Are you on your own or can you seek help in, in understanding this? And for those out there who maybe are listening to you and they like your expertise, Wally, but they don't have your direct phone number. They can't call you up and say, well, can you explain this award letter to me? What do most families do to make sense of an award letter in a circumstance like this? That's a great question. And that's, that's something that for many families may be difficult. Um, yeah. Financial aid offices, especially at large public institutions, the, the, the counselors that deal with the in-person counseling and advising and stuff like that, it may be weeks or months in order to get an appointment for that. Uh, obviously, if you've got access to a college coach, that's your best case scenario because of course. It, we've actually had families upload documents to it in preparation for a meeting so that we can talk apples to apples on a call. Um, aside from that, I think that they're just going to have to be very, um, they're going to have to be very diligent in investigating the different aspects of the award letter. As mentioned, a merit offer should have been explained to them earlier. So that may not be a situation, but any other offer, um, gift aid that's calculated as a portion of the need base or anything like that, eventually you're going to want to get an, a direct from the source explanation from the school, from the school's financial aid office, if you can't get in touch with the financial aid office and you've worked with an admissions officer at the school, get in touch with the admissions officer, because especially if that admissions officer views you as a prize, as someone that they want to keep, they're going to work with you to make sure that they that you know what the bottom line deal is. But um, it all depends on accessibility. Families, please, please try not to go to Facebook. You know, there are some groups out there that are really interesting, but I cringe daily. I, I, I view them just to see where I might contribute and I try to avoid contributing, but I cringe daily because of the commentary on there. So, yeah, try to go to the best case source, which may be uh, the financial aid office, college coach, uh, maybe even a state higher education office. Okay. Okay. And then is there any way... You know, you mentioned that these schools that use the federal methodology, their net price calculator is going to be pretty cut and dried. There's not a lot of customization that's happening in that space. Let's right. say I'm applying to three schools, all of which use only the federal methodology. I submitted the FAFSA. Should I expect consistency across those award letters, if not in terms of the method of reporting that information, in terms of the way that they determine my EFC and, and what they're, they're saying? Using federal methodology, the EFC is going to be equal at all of those schools, okay? What may be different, though, is the school's financial packaging philosophy. Gotcha. Some schools may agree to meet X percent of need-based aid eligibility with gift aid, meaning a grant. Other large public schools may not have that financial flexibility, so... Speaking with a speaking with uh, a client this morning. In fact, I was speaking with the prospective student, not with the parents, and we went through we went through an example. Um, if your EFC is this and the cost of the school is this, if the school has no additional financial resources to give you gift aid, you're only going to qualify for this loan or maybe work study. Okay, but it all depends. It goes back to the philosophy offered by the school as to what's what. 
And there again, there's no uniformity from school to school. I'd be fair. I think it's fairly safe to say that a, a public institution is going to have less flexibility with gift aid than a private. Yeah. Okay. But there again, there may be some pockets of money for students that are pursuing specific degrees or anything like that. That may produce it. So there again, no, there's no necessary. There's not necessarily any reason to expect uniformity across the board. When you were, I'm going to ask you kind of an odd question, but when you were the director of financial aid at Loyola, did you ever see award letters from other schools and have people come to you and say, how do I make sense of what, what Tulane is giving me or, or what university of Texas is giving me? Do they bring those stuff to you ever and say, well, I understand yours, but not these other ones. Help me figure out this. Stuff my out. time in the financial aid office was pre Facebook, pre social media, right, pre all right. of this stuff. And so the outreach may have been a little bit different. No, we never, we never used to really handle that in today's age. We are recommending in many cases, if they've received an offer from a competing school, that is more advantageous from their A number one school that they use that as a negotiating tool. Okay. Yeah. Now you want to make sure that they're, that they're truly an apples to apples comparison, that the two schools are equal, that they may be cohorts, every, anything like that, but absolutely positively use that to your advantage to negotiate a better deal. Because if the school really wants you and has the capacity to, they're going to help you out. Or they may help you out. And that's a, that's a great way to whet the appetite of our listeners, because we will certainly have some segments on negotiation, especially as we get into the spring and those award letters start to come back. So Wally, I love that cross promotion of future episodes of getting in. And I want to thank you for coming on this one and talking us through the award letter process. Great. Great. Glad to. Ian, it's a pleasure. Awesome. Folks, that does it for today. We've got an awesome show coming up next week. Kind of a special treat. We've got a couple of people from Duolingo who are going to come on the show and talk about the value of learning a foreign language. That's a really cool segment that does dovetail quite nicely with the application process. And then we will talk also about working in college. What does work study look like? What's it like to have a job? It's about more than just the money that might surprise you. Uh, Thanks so much for being here today. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll be back, back again next week with another great one. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.